Hi, welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home, where we talk about all of the things that make it easier to do the work that we love and the work that we sometimes don't love so much, helping care for animals. So any number of ways that people work with animals, one of the big risks is burning out or hitting compassion fatigue. And my guest today is Kelly Sisson-Snyder, and I asked her if she would share her personal story about her experiences because she had put a post on Facebook about some of the effects on her. And I said, if you would be willing to share this, I think it would be really, really valuable. And she very graciously agreed, which was lovely. So thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks for coming on Unleashed. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about your background in working with animals? I sure can. Um, I have always loved animals since childhood, you know. So um, when I was raising my sons, and people were just starting to be on Facebook, on, not on Facebook because it didn't exist, but on online discussing animals and, and all that kind of stuff. I never had a particular interest to be a veterinarian and that was all people really thought of at that time of if you're going to work with animals you'll have to be a vet and so that that sounded interesting just not what I wanted to do so I just never did anything when I was I stayed home to raise my kids for a while and during that time learned a lot about all the different kinds of things that people do with animals and decided I'm not going to go back into the old job that I had which was I worked at I worked at NASA. I was a, a technical illustrator and drafts person, and I knew that I was going to have to go back to school anyway. So I said, I'm just going to find behavior school and go there. Um, turned out that I live about 40 minutes from the University of North Texas, where I ended up getting bachelor's and master's degrees in, in, in behavior analysis so that I specifically could work with animals. My thesis was on dogs with aggression, and so I worked in that field for both during grad school and following, and um, traveled quite a bit, did a lot of seminars and that sort of thing. But then I got an opportunity to start a behavior program in a local shelter that it, it's an old shelter, nonprofit shelter, and it it um had been successful for a long time, but they've never had a behavior department. Mm -hmm. So I went in and it was basically figure out what we need to have a behavior department. And so that's what I did. So for 10 years, I worked there and um, it was a really satisfying career and involved being able to do a lot of research on my own, like trying out things, seeing if they work reading other people's research, just doing a lot of things, and then just being around animals all the time, doing training and so forth. So the shelter that I worked with, um, SPCA of Texas, in the beginning of the years that I worked there, was switching over from being an animal control facility for um, a, an area north of Dallas and they had made the decision as an organization to switch back to um, just being a nonprofit so that they could, they, you know, not being a, um open admission and so forth. So that may be a lot of background, but it's, it's probably going to be relevant when I 
talk some more, but in an open admission shelter, of course, every animal from the community that comes right. to the door must be taken in mm-hmm. unless you can provide them another alternative that would work better for the family. So that means you often have population issues. You have, well, we're in um, kitten season, so all the shelters are full of kittens. And if you get random kittens without moms, if you get um, sick kittens, if you get, you know, a lot of euthanasia decisions have to be made related to that. We also, the SPCA focused, and they still focus heavily on um, hoarding cases with both cats and dogs, occasionally rabbits, occasionally um, any pigs, all kinds, any kind of animal you could imagine. And so these animals come in and they're very damaged to begin with. And they're, you know, they've got severe illness. They've got severe, well, the way I think of it, their, their social behavior is appropriate for what they had to live in. Live in. They right. were they were doing the things they had to do to live in the situation they were in. They weren't damaged in the sense of behaving wrongly. They were damaged in the sense of we humans have expectations of them to be friendly and um, have gratitude toward us for all of the things we do. Mm-hmm. So we go in, we steal them from their only home they ever knew, even though it was horrible and they were sleeping around other dead animals and that sort of thing. We sweep them back to a concrete kennel, bedding. We provided, you know, what comforts we could, but they usually didn't know what bedding was for. So we're seeing all these really rough sides of animal care, right? The care is not the right word, but of people having animals. Right. Um, and a lot of times people who have a whole lot of the times a huge number of the times when you've got hoarding or pit bull fighting or rooster fighting the people really 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 do love their animals yes and that's so shocking to people to to hear that they're like well how could they do that if they love them but it's a, a warped sense of providing yeah like with the hoarded animals the people almost 100%. I mean, they all have some sort of um, mental health concerns of their own. So they may not even recognize that the animal is starving to death. And that even, I mean, I remember a guy who, um, his cat, one of his many cats had been dead on the mantle for weeks. And when he was asked, this is a story that was told to me, it didn't happen to me, but he was asked what about the cat on the mantle and he says i just don't know what to do with it so there's just a lot of mm-hmm. um lack of education as well as mental health issues going on but then you go with something like dog fighting and cockfighting um with cockfighting these people they do know what they're doing they make these most beautiful wooden inlaid containers for these shiny, perfect spurs that are sharp. You, I mean, you could kill yourself with them if you weren't careful, um, but that they apply to the animal and they do it with great pride. And they spend hours and a lot of time to make these gorgeous tools to kill other birds with. And so much of it, and the same 
similar sort of, well, it's not usually as good with fighting people. They're, they're not as worried about being fancy, but they <laughs> have a lot of the same concepts of, I love my dogs. I'm proud. They're proud of what their dogs can do. It's a sport to them. And yet a lot of times their dogs are severely injured um, and killed. And the same with the roosters. And often they don't, mm, the animals are not um, pet animals that you can, they're not, it's not that no pit bull has ever been made into an awesome pet. I realize that sometimes right. they are. But the people that read those stories online about, you know, Michael Vick's dogs that were saved and, and so forth, they don't know the whole story. Right. We know the whole story. We know most of the whole story. And so working on the inside where you know, you know, this animal may have killed a lot of other animals. He may have killed people. Um, we had, when I worked at Dallas Animal Services, they had several cases. I was only there a short time, but they had three cases that I remember right off the top of my head where animals had maimed humans and we were expected to, I mean, seriously, like pinned a little boy down and shook him in a public place where he, where the dog was up for adoption. And the law won. I mean, the, 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 the dog was let off, sent to a sanctuary, um, two other cases where people were injured, the animals were saved, and no one tended to the needs of the humans, as far as I could tell, in terms of the, in, in terms of what the city spoke about, in terms of what the uh, community talked about, it was all save the dog, save the dog, save the dog. How did that affect you and the people you worked with? that messaging that's that is kind of where I had had levels of compassion fatigue up and down throughout my time there but by that time it was pretty you just pretty needed a break <laughs> I needed a break and uh, the way it affected me was like what about that baby you know what about that family and there's not a thing in the world I can do if I speak up saying it's more important to make sure that no other baby is hurt than I'm a bad shelter person. Mm -hmm. And so it puts you in this um, really bad conundrum where, you know what? I know that dog, for the dog he is, he is just being a dog. He is doing what his environment has taught him to do over his lifetime and I get that. I don't think he's bad. What right. I think he is, is dangerous. Yes. And so I think he needs to be euthanized. And so that really gets up to the thing. You've got people that call you killer to your face or in emails and texts. They call you names based on your decision to do the hard work. So you're criticized for it. Your city doesn't support you. Because half the city wants us to be a no-kill city. The other half is concerned about loose um, dogs that we have running all over South Dallas that maim people. And so there's nobody really looking at these. There's real-life people that work in these shelter environments that have to do the work whether you like it or not. 
And we have all got to get together and make a decision about what our priorities are because all this pulling back and forth and doing things, you know, this group doing it that way and that group doing it just makes it untenable. Right. So as I was going through this, you know, all this push and pull, I'm expected to do this and blah, blah, blah. Well, our shelter um, decided to become no kill the work toward becoming a no kill shelter. Mm-hmm. They, um, they brought in 30,000 animals a year. Some of them had done all sorts of things. Some of them, we had no idea what their history was. Um, we started some good things there. Um, people that really wanted to do the right thing. I really think that the goal is to do the right thing, but I think there is a um, transition challenge it happened actually at both of the last shelters I worked with. When I was at the SPCA, the last couple of um, operations vice presidents that came through were working toward reducing euthanasia, reducing, you know, reducing euthanasia. Which is an awesome goal. It's an awesome goal. When taken in with the big picture. <laughs> Sometimes the animals would sit there for months and months and months. And that was at the without enough people to actually provide them with the work and care that they specifically needed, which was not have people go in their kennel and sit with them and overwhelm them. They needed people who had skill, but you know, and I had some wonderfully skilled staff that could do that. Um, but not for hundreds of animals at the same time, you can't hit, you can't get to them all. And then with the, an admission shelter, meaning you can't say no to anybody unless you've got a specific place that will take that case or an alternative for the owner. And that's a, that kind of managed intake is pretty tricky, to, not tricky to set up, but it's cumbersome to set up. So we had to try to please the public, both sides of the public, public try to please the city of Dallas political machine and then we had to try to do the right thing by the animal and there wasn't anybody looking out for us for my staff for the volunteers beyond the the volunteers probably got it better because at least they could step back Mm -hmm. Um, I worked 60 hours a week and it was because there was that much worked I could have worked 80 hours a week and not gotten done with everything that needed to be done so what were some of the what were some of the symptoms that you saw in your staff and you um among staff I would see more time spent alone not wanting to work with other people um maybe you'd find them starting to come in late taking longer breaks than they were supposed to take I suspect, though I can't, and I would never, you know, I would never name names on this issue anyway, but I, I, from conversations I would casually overhear, I think there was a lot of drug abuse going on mm-hmm. outside of the office. I, I know of a couple of cases where it happened on, a few cases where it happened at work um, and they were dealt with, but you see, I hear people who, they, they would give up bike ride all the time and oh, I haven't I haven't ridden my bike in three months mm-hmm. um, um, you know my I don't spend any time with my own dog and that was one of the things I think when it hit me the hardest was when I didn't even want I didn't even want to hang out with my own pets and I love them they're my family 
my husband <laughs> was just like, I just wanted to be alone. I just wanted to be alone. And I have always come home and for, you know, most of my career, come home and done artwork and things at night. I completely quit. And it was just, there wasn't another bit of energy there. I do, I, I meditate. So I, um, I used that as a healing tool, which was very helpful, but not in the sense that a lot of people think about it, but in the sense of just being able to be with the problems and just kind of just experience them without running away from them Yes, because of um, that running away creates the, all these cycles that I was just listing, like drinking too much or mm-hmm. um, not doing the things you're like, a, there's so much avoiding. You're not doing the things that you love to do. You're not seeing the people or spending time with your animals that you love. Yeah. All the things that fill you back up are the things that you stop doing when you get to that point, which is such a terrible conundrum. I have a list of some of the symptoms and you, you hit a lot of them just by randomly um, saying some of the things that affect people. But I'm going to read some here just to see if any trigger more thoughts in you. Um, in terms of health problems, lots of chronic ailments, exhaustion, addiction, numbness, guilt, fear, anger, cynicism, hypervigilance, minimizing of problems, avoidance of people and other issues, and a sense of persecution are sort of the emotional side of it. And and with a decreased sense of empathy, creativity, or the ability to embrace complexity, where we get sort of that black and white thinking. And so when you were going through, you know, the people coming in late and taking more breaks and using drugs and not spending time in their hobbies, those are all signs of these things where we get ourselves so strung out that we have no bandwidth to creatively find our way back. Yeah, exactly. Um, And to know, to not have a people-centered work environment, um, by that I mean, you know, we're there for the animals. We work in shelters for the animals. But the people are the ones doing the work. And if the people are not holding it together. They can't do their best for the work and, and problems happen. But the typical way that I see people in management handle these issues is not to say, you know, set up trainings or provide support or even, you know, you need to take a day off. Mm-hmm. You don't see any of that because sometimes a day off is gold. Yeah. Um, but you need to, you know, whatever, just having trainings where they can learn about self-care and that sort of thing. Those are not priorities. It's just push harder, push harder. You're not getting enough done. I've seen you come in late X number of times. And can we talk about it? It's not the question that's asked. It's like, you've got to cut it out. You've got to get better. I didn't personally get that kind of discussion because I was a manager, but um, I, I certainly know the feeling of waking up in the morning and going, just the idea of getting in my car to make that trip it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had been at home for March, I think it was, when I, I stopped working. And I'm finally, and it's been, I, I've been focusing on art and on um, building and making and things that don't require me to make euthanasia decisions, for, <laughs> uh, you know, or to help with euthanasia decisions in um, large shelters, although I almost lost one to a car 
being hit by a car, but he's fine. Letting my head have a chance to clear out has been amazing. And I'm at the point where I'm confident that if I went back in, I could go back in to um, sheltering environment and do fine because I, I think I think I have some different tools now that and I think one of the best things I did, was just not work for a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm working, I'm selling things. I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing art, art type stuff. Cause that's my other persona. Um, but I'm not, um, I'm not under that. Uh, what, you know, cloud all the time. Right. I'm not constantly wearing that lead raincoat. That you can't get around. Yeah. And, sort of found yourself again in there. Which is good. So you said you have more tools. If you were to go back into a shelter environment, what are some things that you personally would do differently to make sure that you stayed healthy and happy? Part of it is that I would work toward having systems in place for supporting my staff. Because a lot of the, you know, when you're in a management position and your staff is having a hard time, that's part of your issue too, because you see them suffering um, so going in the door, I would say that one of my very most critical, important tools would be that we're going to have um, we're going to have support for all staff with respect to um, compassion fatigue, mm-hmm. bringing people in, um, discussing it at meetings, having one on ones with staff members and not just staff members, especially staff members that are showing signs, but not just them, because a lot of people don't show it. Right. And other people don't have it yet. But they, everybody in the shelter is at risk because of where they work. So what can we what are preventive measures we can put in place? So I would want that to be part of my job going back in as a manager in a shelter, this is, this is just not optional. This is what we do. Um, And the same for myself. When I find myself at, you know, I'm burning the candle at both ends and I'm, you know, I'm leaving the house. I'm getting at work, work at six 30 and coming home at um, anywhere from six 30 to eight 30 at night. And that's a problem. Start, you know, start putting, a, you know, I have to leave the office at six. I have to leave the, you know, I have to just put some limits on overdoing it. Um, have people, continue. I was pretty good at delegating. In fact, I just took a uh, um, profile, a personality profile for a job that I'm considering. And they had me go through this thing. And that was one of, they were like, well, she's good at delegating. So <laughs> I got that going for me. Um because I think that's important too when you have that opportunity in your job is you can't do it all yourself. You have people for a reason and it's because the job's too big for one person. Yeah. And so And I think that's a big risk with with the animal care professionals I've seen where you do start feeling like this has to be done and I have to do it. That we lose this perspective that we're a team and there are others around and I don't have to do everything, but we together someone can do this so being able to delegate is awesome yeah really it's so important it's so important no matter whether you're managing one person or someone else there's always somebody else you know do you have a team member you can spare for this project or can we work together to assign our 
tasks to our teams so that that we cover all the bases without burning out a few specific people. That that area would be really high priority, but I would build that into routine trainings as well. I like to have a training in place where you learn the rules of the road of handling in this shelter. In this shelter, you know, we don't yank on the collar and here's how you teach them to walk on the loose leash. So we start with those kinds of things. And when the animals are being treated better and they start to behave better, that's easier on the staff too. It's hard. I mean, because we get at shelters, we get a lot of big bully breed maniacs that have never had any manners taught. And so they can be really hard to handle. But as they start getting those skills and the animals start responding, because we've got a team of people handling that them that way, then that makes it easier on the staff as well mm-hmm. because they're not getting beaten up every time they take this, you know, Bruno out or whatever um, because of him being so excited and, right. and leaping around. Plus giving them skills to know when an animal is actually dangerous or when he's just a maniac that doesn't have any manners. <laughs> yes. And because there's a lot of confusion. Yeah. You know, in sheltering a lot of the entry level people that do a lot of the hardest physical labor um, cleaning the kennels, moving those dogs around, performing euthanasia. They didn't come from an animal field. They usually came from high school mm-hmm. or from a temp agency. And their their job, you know, they didn't go back to school later in life like I did and decide, oh, this is what I really want to do and this is where I really want to be. So what happens to them is we just lose them. They, they quit and they go away. And so you may have a good person. And if you're not supporting them um in these ways they'll leave right so and that's that's a huge risk because first off we lose great people but we're also sending people out into the world with a with a scar on their heart (laughs) that they're carrying forward yeah yeah like a and a bad attitude about that organization Mm -hmm. people are like i can't go there because i heard that things are really bad there yeah And, and so just on so many levels and for so many aspects of running an organization, having people that um, quit because they can't do it anymore or they're burned out or they're suffering from compassion fatigue doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the community because the community loses a strong confidence in that resource. And I typically don't, and there are individual cases over the years where people inside the shelter were legitimately doing something wrong. Um, Not specifically while I was at any of the organizations I was at, but for the most part, vast majority of people that work there, they're amazing. They work hard. They have so much love and caring in their hearts. And we don't take good care of them. We don't take good enough care of the people end of the stick. Right. And, that's got to be addressed because it's just we're, we can't we have such a hard job that we're assigned by our communities to do, mm-hmm. which is take care of all these animals, make sure that all the people out there are taking care of the, all these animals correctly in the way that we as a city have decided is the correct way to care for an animal. 
but we don't take care of the people that are assigned to do that job. And we give people the idea that if it is emotionally draining, that it's sort of their fault. Like if they were tougher or stronger or better, then they'd be able to handle it. And that's the worst message to send too, because then we have everybody stuffing all these feelings down instead of saying, this is incredibly difficult work. And the fact that you're so caring is an asset but it also means that it's it's going to be hard. And so we do need to be people-centered and have programs that say, this is hard. How can we help? How can we help? We're still going to love and care for all those animals. Better. Better. Exactly. It's like the, the airplane oxygen thing. If yeah. you can't, you know, you've got to get your own on first before you can put one on the kid next to you. And um, I see that lacking in a lot of shelters especially city shelters because they have so much on their plate right um still they're awesome people who are there to do oh, an important, important job mm-hmm. um but they need the support they need they need to know that you know if i'm having a day where i'm on the edge of tears all day that somebody's going to not come down on me for that but they're going to take care of me for that because you know I work I I think it was true in both no it was in 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 one of the shelters I worked with worked in I was two doors down from the euthanasia room that was my office I was two doors down and so I saw them dogs that I had recommended euthanasia for dogs that I had not recommended euthanasia for but Mm -hmm. other other issues like health or, you know, now she's bitten somebody and all those kinds of things. And I'd watch them. I'd have that on my shoulders, watching them go down the door. Um, we always allowed staff at that shelter to staff that were um, trained, that were qualified to be in the room with the um, animal as it's being euthanized. And I have really mixed feelings about it because it's really hard it <laughs> for some people. I think it's a benefit. I know, we used to keep cards. Some of them were shaped like hearts and they could write a note to the animal that they, that they knew and put it in there, put it with them mm-hmm. so that when they were taken away, they would be just kind of a ceremony to perform. And I think things like that for some people are really valuable, but I think some people need a break yeah. and they need, they need, you know, you've euthanized, you've been on the euthanasia task for the last however long period of time. Maybe you've been doing it for a week or whatever. Um, I'm going to switch you to something else for now. You don't need to be doing that day after day after day. And maybe we'll just take you off of that job for a couple of months or, or however long. Um, but those kinds of Those kinds of free options to... Punishment are not the first things that I see thought of in a lot of shelters. So it's like if I can let a staff member go home an hour early, well, in a sense, it costs money. But it doesn't really cost money because how much work are they going to get done while they're crying? Right. So if I can let them go home, get better and come back all systems go the next day, then that's a pretty, pretty cheap fix. Mm-hmm. And the same with, you know. With other things, if I can, they're doing a job that's really hard or aversive to them, and they do a really good job at it, look, you did an awesome job. 
I'm going to let you do something that you know better. And that requires some getting to know your staff and making sure you know what's valuable to them and what would work as a reinforcer. And you've got all these options of reinforcers that are free or nearly free that um, I think we should really incorporate into how we manage people that deal with animals and people that are suffering. In fact, that should probably be a, somebody's job at a shelter. HR doesn't typically do that. They probably should, that should probably be their job. But just have have somebody who's in charge of making sure that everybody's okay and yeah. providing them with training tools and with support tools and just mentioning, you know, you've mentioned that you were out drinking really late for the last three days and look, you want to come and talk for a minute? Is everything okay? It's those kinds of things. It is those kinds of things. And, and they can be dramatic or subtle interventions that that make a difference so it could be something big where we you know everybody we're going to have an all-hands meeting we're going to do a training or it could just be I'm really worried I've heard you say that three times lately and that doesn't feel like the you I know is that is everything yeah. okay? and sometimes the changes are so subtle that that the person themselves isn't seeing the change but their friends and family are noticing and, and yeah. starting to go you're just not you that's an interesting point because after I left my last job several friends mentioned to me I've seen things and my sister even my sister mentioned it and and some other friends a couple of them are psychologists and so this isn't their work but they're like they mentioned that they had seen changes in me and um I was not really zoned in on because I was really just trying to get through the day every day and so there's a place for your friends at work casually to kind of maybe speak up in a way that a manager couldn't, but sometimes it's up to a manager, a supervisor or an HR person or somebody say, you know what? I just want to make sure you're okay. You want to go out for a coffee or something. And so, so yeah, that, that really rings true to me because I, after they started mentioning it, my husband, my good friends and was like yeah I've just not been all there lately I just Mm -hmm. have been zoned out and it's a tough it's a tough thing but I'm so glad you're doing better now I mean that's oh yeah yeah I'm I um I'm doing great I'm really happy to have been able to spend this time just doing art like art therapy (laughs) and we're you know we're doing a little work on our home that is nice to have coming along and and some things that are for like I said I'm still selling I'm still making money I'm still doing some consulting but I'm not going I'm not switching from shelters to going back to working with aggressive dogs in fact I'm done working with aggressive dogs dogs one-on-one that will not be my job in the future Mm -hmm. because that is another area absolutely (laughs) that one is last dog I worked with was maybe a year and a half ago and he got me he got it was my second bite and working with aggressive dogs it's the second time I'd been bitten in years and um um it was just like when I'm with the family I was in my professional mode and I'm like now we can continue doing this if you want to and here's what blah blah and I got in the car and started driving and I was driving I had to go to the ER it was a, the bite was that bad and I um and I 
I was driving along going, okay, just replaying this event that happened in my mind. And I'm like, I missed it. I didn't see it coming and I missed something. It, I think I've kind of maybe figured out what happened going since then, but it's that day and for the next many days, I didn't know why that dog bit me. I didn't know why. And I'm like, if I can't read it, it's not safe for me. Right. To be there. And that goes back to some of those, you know, the symptoms of, of being either burned out or dealing with compassion fatigue or that we are, our senses are a little bit deadened and our ability to, to take in all the information and it's just draining. It's just, it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I don't, I don't know that that's what happened. It very well could be. I think this dog had had, um, some training in um, Schutze. He was not under very good stimulus control. So that is kind of where I've gone after thinking and thinking and mm-hmm. thinking. Fortunately, they didn't call me to come back and work with them because I probably would have declined. But the other sad thing is that they said their next step would be to put him on a shock collar, which I found horrifying because he's already so... Yeah. He's very... He was brought up, you know, long story, but he was just not in a good place already. That is not a tool that's (laughs) going to make it better. Yeah. So, so I guess really the thing for me is, you know, I had these experiences and being in a position where I can provide support for people that have those kinds of things going on in their lives kind of gets me excited too because yeah. I'm like if we can if we can use our own experiences and then get training and all that stuff all the you know just learn 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 share with each other and yeah. set up ways for people to open up or if they're you know some people aren't going to pour their hearts out to you but if they have resources if they have ways to deal with it yeah. can make this hard work that has to be done because that's what our country has decided is how we're going to manage animals. Now, other countries do it in a lot of different ways. So but we do this, we do the sheltering system, we do rescue, we do um, training, and we do all these things in this way that our culture accepts to some extent. <laughs> and um, so we need to have in place that that part of the program that cares for the professional, that cares for the person. A hundred percent. Actually, that's that's why I've started switching what I'm doing. Because like you, I'm really motivated to, to do that kind of work and to learn more about that at this point because it's so needed. It's absolutely vitally needed. And I'm really grateful to you for sharing your experiences with us because it can be hard to talk about. And a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but the more we hear someone else sharing how it affected them, the more it normalizes it and says, oh, that, this is this is something that happens. And it's not that I'm not doing a good job. It's that we're not talking about the effects. So I'm really grateful to you for that. So if listeners wanted to learn more about you and the things you do, how could they find you? Um, you can look at my websites. Um, I have one that's www.behaviorunlimited.com. My art website is www.paintedcatstudio.com. And um, you can email me at kelly at behaviorunlimited.com or kelly at paintedcatstudio.com. And that's K-E-L-L-I-E. 
And I will put that links in, for those into the show notes so that people don't have to write these things down as they're driving. Um, and, and Kelly is an amazing artist, so I'm going to beg her to let me put an image or two of her work into the show notes here. We'll see if she says yes. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today, Kelly. I really appreciate you talking to me. It's been wonderful. Thanks. 